a lot of the time, the audience wouldn't necessarily know that there is an agenda behind a particular piece. So of the pieces that I found, a half were not attributed clearly. So the audience just doesn't know where that material is coming from. Hi, my name is Dr. Kate Wright, and I am the academic lead in media and communications at the University of Edinburgh. Some Western media organizations are increasingly using content from NGOs based in Africa as part of their coverage of the continent. I reached out to Dr. Wright to discuss her research and her latest book titled, Who is Reporting Africa Now? She also recently published a short blog with the same title. I started the interview by asking her what led her to do the research. So I wasn't a journalist covering Africa for many years for the BBC World Service. And um, since I left journalism and moved into academia, the cuts uh, in many news organizations have got worse and worse. Uh, and I was interested to find out how news organizations were sustaining their coverage of sub-Saharan countries. So I was interested in some arguments that were being had in particular at the Frontline Club in London and New York, uh, which involved journalists, aid workers um, and other interested parties about the extent to which uh, aid agencies and other kinds of NGOs, including human rights organizations or collectives, uh, or media for development organizations, the extent to which those kinds of non-governmental organizations should be providing actual content to news outlets. So not just acting as news sources in the sense that they might enable access to case studies or help you on a field trip, but actually providing the material to place in news outlets. And, and you say that's a problem? Well, I do think it's a problem. Um, most of the research that been done in that area had looked in particular at the big fundraising appeals, the big disasters. Uh, nothing had been done outside of those areas. I think it's a problem for a number of reasons. First of all, um, NGO content is almost taking over from journalistic content in some news outlets at some kinds of times. Um, the evidence that I found was that um, for some news outlets, NGO content was very nearly all of their Africa coverage for an entire week. That's not okay. So that's not a varied news diet. Um, the other problem is that it's not attributed a lot of the time. The audience wouldn't necessarily know that there is an agenda behind a particular piece. So I've, of the pieces that I found, a half were not attributed clearly. So the audience just doesn't know where that material is coming from. And I think um, although there are some good things, that NGOs do, I don't say it's all bad by any means, um, they form for their own hype a bit. Um, they really do believe that they're empowering people um, and that they are best placed to enable the voices of, of, of particularly vulnerable people, for example, displaced people. And that, that's not always true. Um, in fact, they've, they've made some quite serious mistakes that I discovered, including um, lack of informed consent was a big one. Um, so one of the case studies that I found was uh, a vulnerable individual who'd been a child soldier who believed that he was giving an interview in South Sudan, which, is, as we all know, is, is um, quite a fragile area. Um, he believed he was giving an interview for an internal NGO report, something like a donor report, to say, you know, thank you for the money that I've received. Uh, actually, he was doing an interview for uh, a BBC online journalist. Um, but the aid agency had not properly communicated that. So he had not given his consent to that. 
uh, and his name, his face, his location was up on BBC Online, which we know is one of the most popular news sites in the world for an entire month before he was even told, let alone um, permission being asked. That's just not okay. That's dangerous. You talked about uh, what you refer to as the colonization of African news by uh, NGOs. And you've also talked about how this content is often not attributed. So I'm curious whether you think that uh, labeling this content might help to deal with some of the issues that you, uh, you found in your research. Well, I think it's a key principle, key journalistic principle, isn't it, to attribute your sources. And audiences need that in order to judge the validity of the kinds of narratives they're being presented with. They need to be able to weigh up, you know, how much do I trust this? How much do I not trust this? One of the key reasons why it was not being attributed was because a lot of the time it's not news or uh, not NGOs calling up journalists and pitching material to them. Often it's that an NGO will employ a trusted freelancer to do a commission for them, and then it's that freelancer who approaches the news organisation. So when these pieces are attributed, they're often just attributed to that freelancer and not the NGO who hired them, briefed them set up people for them to interview or film or photograph uh, and, and, and even perhaps even um, selected footage or um, pictures from that commission. So as far as the, the staff journalist is concerned, they're being approached by a trusted freelancer, sometimes even a, a former colleague. There was one case study I looked at where there was a photographer who previously worked at The Independent who went to work for another um, aid organisation and it was his name on the photographs that persuaded um, independent staff to, to do a full colour spread on this uh, because they, they trusted him. Um, and that's not to say that freelancers are not worthy of trust, but the fact is they have been commissioned by an NGO in a particular way. So to just attribute it to that freelancer is really misleading. Uh, uh, you know, the, the other thing that... Um... I'm really interested in. I mean, you you, you said that uh, many Western uh, media organizations are uh, cutting their coverage uh, of Africa. So you probably don't, you know, some media organizations don't have as many journalists as they had uh, on the continent uh, compared to years past. But that that line kind of I don't know. I've not done. You've done the research, but you know, my impression is that having look at looked at. Uh, you know, the Financial Times, Bloomberg, um, you know, Al Jazeera, uh, Quartz, um, even the BBC just uh, expanded um, on the continent uh, with, you know, big bureaus in Nairobi and Lagos and new services in the north of Africa, southern Africa is covered. So my impression was that there is actually a scaling up of the coverage of the continent. So is, is that uh, not what you're seeing? Um, very good question. Um, two points. First of all, my empirical research was done in 2012. This is, I'm afraid, the timeline for academic pieces. That's how long it takes to get the stuff in, number crunch it, get it out as book. So that was prior to the funding coming in for the big BBC World Service expansion. Um, number two, I think perhaps I should modify what I said a little bit earlier. There are cuts to some budgets, even within BBC World Service. Al Jazeera has certainly seen a tightening because of the drop in oil price. They are also experiencing budget cuts. Um, the other big factor 
um, is online. And most of this stuff is found online. Uh, and I think anyone who's worked in the news uh, is aware that online is a hungry beast. Uh, it requires very, very large volumes of multimedia in particular. Most news organizations I spoke to um, said that it's normal as you scroll down to always have an image in sight and they like video on most pages. Um, so it's it's not so much just the cuts, that's perhaps an oversimplification. It's the the demand for multimedia going up at the same time as the budgets for, are going down. And it's not just, again, it's not just budgets, it's budgets for particular kinds of things. Um, photojournalists was a really big theme. Most of the broadsheets have, have cut their photojournalists dramatically. So it's who's been cut in inefficiencies. There's a move towards multi-skilling. There's a move towards the speeding up of news production. And people who are real specialists, particularly visual specialists, have been squeezed out. Uh, and it's the NGOs who are employing them, um, particularly pictures, but also um, filmmakers. That's a current theme. So people who really wanted to continue to specialize, going freelance and starting to pick up NGO commissions as well as news commissions. I wonder what the you know the NGOs you spoke to you know what their answer was in using the the shock and awe images when it comes to fundraising. I mean, do do you find them sensitive to some of the um, the, the things that you raised in your research that this is over stereotyping and over generalization of Africa? Um, well, let me just clarify. First of all, I didn't look at a, a big fundraising appeal period. I deliberately didn't because there's been lots and lots of work done in those areas before, like the big DEC appeals. Uh, and we can't really generalize from those periods because they're very specific kinds of appeals where agreements between the DEC and British-based broadcasters come into operation. So I looked at quiet news periods deliberately, the kinds of bits in August where you're scrapping around, you're looking for something to do, you're looking for something a little bit more creative. And when um, there weren't commissions coming in to the news desks, there weren't obvious leading news stories or breaking news stories. So it's those periods where news organizations were perhaps thinking about, well, really, do we want to be spending the money on bringing, generating news stories from the field, or can we maybe just use this news NGO coverage instead? Um, in those kinds of periods, which are different from the big fundraising appeals, I found very little um, of the kind of poverty porn stuff that we have traditionally come to associate with NGO campaigning. Both sides were really saying, you know, we, we can't just do that endlessly. First of all, your audience gets tired. Uh, secondly, there are some quite complicated arguments going inside NGOs about dignity and about voice and about stereotyping. So my research doesn't show that NGOs deliberately try to stereotype or they're trotting out these images all the time. Instead, something quite different is coming out in these sort of different periods. And that's the aestheticization of Africa, Africa as art. And that's um, pro a problematic treatment of African bodies, um, just as much as the sort of sensationalistic, you know, poverty porn. Um, many of the freelancers I spoke to in particular were very influenced by social documentary photography, um, the work of, say, uh, Sebastian Salgado, and they were deliberately evoking kind of um, Western aesthetic traditions, often quite elite traditions, like the uh, European old masters paintings, 
And they thought that that um, gave their subjects greater dignity. But there's question marks around that too, um, because journalists use those kinds of images. And journalists said over and over again, we wouldn't use this except they're so beautiful. They're really beautiful, these pictures. And, and they are. Um, but it's a different kind of consumption, isn't it? Um, to aestheticize somebody else's suffering, that's also quite questionable. Uh, to make it palatable, to make it okay, as one um, editor told me, uh, for someone to see on a Sunday with their, their breakfast on a Sunday and their croissant and their coffee, to make that not too uncomfortable for them. Um, that's also question questionable but in a different way and and the, the other thing i mean i know you're exploring um you know the, the essence of your research is how ngos are replacing the media um in the coverage of africa and i just wondered whether um you know looking at ngos i mean they probably are you know well funded they have lots of people on the ground is there a way in which aid agencies can work with journalists to the point where they each achieve their Goal. Well, again, I'm going to be very academic, and you're probably going to hate me as a journalist. I um I wouldn't say that NGOs are totally replacing news organisations, um, and it's always difficult when you're putting a blog together because it's always slightly a, a bastardisation of you know six years worth of work. Um, what the book says is that um, NGOs and news organisations are sort of starting to dovetail into one another. Um, they're becoming very very closely allied, and there there are advantages to that. But there are also problems with that. Both NGOs, which are kind of losing their sense of themselves as alternative, you know, losing their alternative perspectives, perhaps their ability to critique things. And they're starting to see their success very much more in terms of getting news coverage, which you could question. And in terms of news organizations, which um, aren't really sufficiently distant from NGOs to be able to critique them. So it, there's problems on both sides. And what tends to happen in the act of legitimizing, working with one another over time uh, is that NGOs and news organizations start to reframe their idea of what is good work in NGO work and in, in journalism. So it gets closer and closer and closer. So, for example, I found people at um, Channel 4 News who started talking very openly with me about um, human rights journalism as being part of their public service remit. And then at the same time, the people with whom they work quite closely at Human Rights Watch were saying, actually, what we do is kind of a sort of a public service journalism. So you can see these two are starting to come really close together. Um, and even when they don't use the word journalism, they use the word, for example, reporting, human rights reporting, meant in both a journalistic sense and in an NGO sense. Um, they're getting really close together. Um, but not in the uniform way. You're ending up with a patchwork where certain news outlets have certain kinds of NGOs that they work with over and over and over again. So in the frontline club discussions, when journalists discuss this, the, the phrase they came up with is favoritism. So what I, I don't think that's quite fair, but what I've tried to explain is why this patchwork of alliances between particular kinds of news outlets and particular kinds of NGOs is happening what some of the good effects of that might be uh, and what, what some of the real problems with that might be. I mean, the, the, the other thing, just listening to you there, um, I'm just thinking in terms of, I mean, both media organisations and NGOs, they all pretty much want to reach the same audience. And the what is between them is uh, platforms. And 
before, I mean, you had the newspapers and you have the TVs and the radios, uh, which were dominated by the media. But right now, with what's happening with the, the so-called digital disruption, uh, social media, now you find uh, the UN or the World Bank or any whatever uh, organization can put out a very, um, you know, a very good piece, a journalistic kind of a piece and push that out on, on social media. And I just kind of wonder whether, you know, that's what you're seeing, whether, yes, there is uh, this kind of close partnership, but in a way, NGOs, now that they are also hiring journalists, are pretty much running their own news operation. I don't know whether you, you can, that's what you found. Um, um, a couple of comments. Um, first of all, uh, NGOs' use of social media is much less effective than it's often cracked up to be. Um, most NGOs were very much still focused on accessing mainstream news outlets because they knew that the audiences for social media um, are often you singing to the choir. It's the people who follow you anyway. Um, and they're fragmented. They're very, very small compared to getting on Al Jazeera, getting on BBC World Service. There are also some NGOs that are deliberately, um, particularly human rights NGOs, deliberately targeting particular kinds of audiences, um, right down to particular diplomats that they know listen to particular news stories, uh, news outlets rather. So um, they have quite sophisticated ideas in terms of advocates about which kinds of outlets they're going for and why. It's not just that they want news coverage, they want particular kinds of news coverage for particular reasons. Um, journalists are very reluctant to take complete packages. I, I only found one instance where a journalist was prepared to take a full photo spread and an article, a written article from an NGO. Journalists need to have a sense of themselves as the journalists, and, and a core part of that is the idea of editorial control. So even if they're just tweaking things, they need that symbolically. They almost need that to still keep the idea of themselves as the journalists who are producing this piece. So very often I found um, that journalists would insist on being offered, for example, a big gallery of images, and then they would select from those images to make a photo slideshow. Or um, they would very often take images but not words. That was really common. And that's to do with journalists continuing to locate meaning in written words rather than in visual language. And that was really, really striking and very interesting to me because, again, that links to the way in which photojournalists and visual specialists have been pushed out of mainstream news outlets. There's nobody really in, even very big media outlets, who understands visual language. They still see pictures as illustrating text, which, of course, they don't. Um, so there's... Um, there's a careful interplay between the two. It's not that journalists will just take a package wholesale. So you have right now lots of citizen journalists uh, out there, people who are reporting, you know, doing a, an amazing local reporting from their communities, corners where NGOs are not present or even uh, your local correspondent cannot reach or it's not even thinking of going there. So is there a way in which this kind of energies, this kind of narratives can be harnessed to the way to the point where they make um they become part of uh, the coverage of uh, of africa in in western news organizations i didn't think that was what was happening 
Um, very often journalists talked about preferring to use NGO material over citizen journalism. Um, it wasn't seen as part of a move towards a general... Uh, why is that? Is that because of trust? or Yes. What is... um, journalists were, didn't want to inadvertently broadcast or publish fake material or misleading material. Um, they knew it would take a great deal of time and energy to check out a piece of citizen journalism and verify it. Um, they regarded NGO content as kind of a shortcut around all of those problems because the NGOs generally that they took material from were large, well-established, uh, with reputations which they needed to uphold. Um, so they often said to me things like, well, I don't need to verify this piece because if it's faked, it's going to come back on that agency and then their donations will suffer. So they kind of regarded taking NGO content as almost a sort of insurance policy, that it was safer, it was less risky for them than taking a piece um, from a citizen journalist or even an unknown freelancer. And I just wondered whether you have tips, if you like, for Western um, media organizations in how they can cover um, Africa. I think news outlets really need to be aware of how much they use NGO content. They tend to consider it in relation to individual stories and not as a whole how often they're using it. Um, and what proportion it forms of their content at different kinds of periods. They also need to be super careful to attribute it. The BBC, I would have to say, is pretty good. Other outlets are not. If it's not attributed, that's not okay. Thirdly, they need to be really aware um, that they need to be in control of ethical standards in the field. Uh, they need to make sure of things like informed consent and the safety of their um, subjects. They can't outsource that. They can't rely on NGOs to necessarily do that well. And the last one, which we haven't actually talked about, which I thought was really interesting, was there was a very common assumption amongst Western journalists um, that it was somehow more empowering to use material from sub-Saharan NGOs rather than the big Save the Children, Oxfam, and so on. That's not actually true. Um, the I, in my thesis, I investigated two sub-Saharan NGOs and the book Only One is Included because it wasn't safe for the second one to be included because the country had slid into civil war. Um, but what I did find was that there was a tendency amongst Western journalists not to go for the big African NGOs like the Treatment, Africa, uh, Treatment Action Campaign, which deals with HIV, um, but to look for very small niche uh, collectives or cooperatives, and they would only use material from those organizations if it was sufficiently high standard in terms of um, sort of technical presentation and also in terms of aesthetic sort of standard. But there's a reason why those NGOs have got that material to a particular standard. You know, it costs a lot usually to develop that kind of expertise, and journalists just didn't check it out properly. They didn't dig around to find out why these NGOs might have broadcast standard video or, um, you know, publishable standard photojournalism. And, and often there are, um, there's an increasing trend, particularly coming from uh, the organizations based in Nairobi, big multinational organizations that are PR agencies or their marketing agencies to do um, pro bono campaigns for small sub-Saharan NGOs. 
Uh, and we did find that the, the small sub-Saharan NGOs had very little say, actually, in how those campaigns move forward. So what was often presented as um, an empowering piece about, for example, a Kenyan NGO um, helping themselves uh, was actually put together by, by Western multinationals um, as, as a marketing piece to advance their own strategic aims. Um, and these organizations, these big commercial organizations, they don't have journalistic standards. They have marketing standards. They regard getting pieces on air or in newspapers as publicity or as marketing. They don't adhere to ideas of truth telling that you or I would ascribe to. Um, so the kinds of stories that they have uh, may not check out um, for a journalist. So I'm thinking in particular here of one, and for libel reasons, I won't name them, one NGO um, which was covered by Al Jazeera and the Washington Post and the BBC and lots and lots of different newspapers, including Kenya's Standard. Um, and actually, the story, when I started digging into it, just didn't check out at all. I wouldn't go so far as to say it was fake news completely, but it was not what it purported to be at all. Um, it was a media stunt put together by uh, marketing and comms experts. Um, most of the expats, uh, in order to kind of, um, they all wanted to get the award of CAM to, to advance their own, their own careers, which I don't blame them for, but it's not journalism. And it was just because it was a light, empowering story. It was just published as is, really without being carefully checked out at all. Um, and that, that was particularly dangerous in that instance because the people from that NGO have party political connections, and it was in the run-up to the election in Kenya. Uh, really shouldn't have happened. So I think there's almost a danger of oversteering. Western journalists are so keen, and, and rightly so, to avoid sort of stereotypes of suffering Africans. You can't see on the podcast, but I'm doing scare quotes here. Um, that they oversteer. That anything that looks empowering or light or upbeat, particularly if it involves social media or mobile phones, they, they go nuts over. It's like catnip to Western journalists. Um, and it might not check out. They don't check out those light stories as much as the big heavy lead, and they really should. That is Dr. Kate Wright, who is the academic lead of the Media and Communications Research Cluster at Edinburgh University. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time and you want to know more about journalism in Africa, check out my website, www.dickenzolewe.com. My podcast is also available on iTunes, and if you have an Android phone, download it on Stitcher app. Just search for my name, Dickens Olewe. And please rate the podcast when you find it. As always, for any comments or feedback, I'm on Twitter, at Dickens Olewe. Until next time, bye-bye.